Future Prophets. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, uh, you're going to realize that we've been talking a lot about the prophet Elijah. And now we're going to launch that mind up. This is the, the, the journey of Elijah. We're going to move into next week. We're going to talk about Elisha. So there were two prophets, very similar names, but different uh, people entirely. So what we talked about last few weeks is Elijah is a sent one. So God, here's what Hebrews tells us. God, in various forms and in various ways, spoke to the fathers, or spoke in ancient times. So he spoke differently than he speaks now. So now in the Bible tells us he speaks to us through Jesus Christ, which is to say Christ has come, he's resurrected, veil has been torn, the Holy Spirit has been sent. So now the Holy Spirit can and will speak to, minister, and lead everyone. In the Old Testament, they did not have that as an option. The people, so the worshipers, would be reliant upon the priests to be faithful and minister so that the presence of God would come. And they were also reliant upon the prophets to speak to them and to speak what God would say to them. And so in the Old Testament, prophets were a very um, uh, necessary thing, and they were an exclusive class of people. Now in the New Testament, we have an office called the prophetic office, and really the idea of all of the offices in the New Testament, so if you want to just follow along with this idea, the Bible tells us God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints. So while there is an office of a prophet, just like there is an office of the evangelist, just there's like there is the office of a pastor, or teacher, and an apostolic office, those designated offices are there in the New Testament to equip the people to operate in those offices. So the apostolic office is to create the sent one, is to create, help people create the sent vision, the sent purposes of God. The prophetic office within the church is to cultivate and develop the prophetic voice of the Father to the people. The evangelistic voice within the church, the evangelistic office within the church is to teach the people what evangelism looks like and to teach the people. Do you understand what I'm talking about? So in the Old Testament, they were exclusive. So the prophet was a prophet, nobody else prophesied with the prophet. Occasionally, you know, Saul would run into a prophet. Yeah, he, he prophesied maybe in the atmosphere, but you had to have a mantle of a prophet in only the court order to prophesy. The New Testament is given to all. It doesn't mean all will operate in it, but nonetheless, the calling is given to all. All may prophesy, the Bible says. So, are you guys trying to keep the following? So there's a difference. So there's a thing, things change. The cross of Christ, the resurrection, I should say, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Everyone wants to say the cross of Jesus changed everything. Well, yeah, the cross changed everything, but more importantly, the resurrection changed everything. And more importantly than that, the coming of the Holy Spirit changed everything. So it's not just the birth and the death and the death, it's the resurrection and the impartation or the activation of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, when he came, things changed. Okay? We agree? Yeah. Old changed, new came. Old garment, new garment. Old wineskin, new wineskin. So there's a shift. So Elijah in the Old Testament was a prophet. He carried the mantle of the prophet. He spoke by the Lord, for the Lord, to the nations, to the people. He's called a sent one. So he actually was an apostolic prophet, because that's what sent one means. It's one someone who's sent. So he was sent to bear witness of the purposes and the power of God. And he went to northern Israel. So what does this mean? If you look on a, if you look on a map today, so if you were to look at the world and you were to move 
to the Middle East, the center of the world in this time and, and before that time, up until probably the time of Christ, or I would say the time of the Apostles, the world as we know it was centered in the Middle East. It's called the known world. So it was centered in Rome. The furthest regions of the known world was probably Rome. And it would go as far out as maybe Greece and perhaps Turkey. And then, but that was the center of the known world. God takes a nation. That's why Israel is where Israel is. Because God set Israel into the very center of the then known world. So he put his people into the middle of all of the other civilizations in order that they would be alike. Well, today we kind of don't see that as being the known world. We see America, Europe, you know, Canada, whatever. That's like the known world. That's like where things center, where weight seems to happen, where power seems to be centered. But in that, in that time, that was not the case. That's why Israel is where Israel is. And the nation of Israel sits in the middle of all this. And it's the nation divided. The northern people, the people that lived up north, said, we don't like following God. We don't want to follow the Lord this way. We're tired of this. We want to make up our own rules. We're going to create our own culture. We're going to create our own gods. And so they departed from the nation. The nation literally split. And so the northern kingdom would be called Israel. The southern kingdom would be called Judah. This will help you when you read your Bible. God is he say to Judah this, say to Israel this. He's speaking to two different groups of people. Sometimes, you know, when, you, when I first started reading my Bible, I was like, what well, do I get the same? Judah. I didn't understand the nation has been split. So the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, Elijah is sent to the northern kingdom. He's sent to a faithless people. He's sent to a people that have been in darkness for a very long time. 19 wicked kings. That's really bad. Can you imagine what the culture looked like if you had 19 rulers who had done nothing? We look around the world and we see these third world cultures. No offense against Puerto Rico. Okay? I'm not picking on you if you're Puerto Rican. But one of the things that the hurricane has exposed is massive corruption within the government and massive debt. So now they have to go down there and they have to look at the books and they have to look at how Puerto Rico is run the government. They have to look at all this stuff. And what they're discovering is massive corruption. And you wonder why the island is poor. The island is poor not for lack of money. The island is poor because of corrupt leadership and failure of leadership. That's what's happening. So if you can imagine that, and there's a lot of countries in the world that Africa, and Africa is probably one of the most asset-rich continents in the world. Diamonds, gold, copper, and just oil, all kinds of things. That is an extraordinarily wealthy continent, probably the most wealthy continent on the globe, and yet it lies under oppression, and it lies under wicked rulership, and the people are impoverished because the leadership themselves are corrupt. And so this nation had 19 leaders in a row that were like, so the nation is probably shot out by this time. And Ahab's there, the Bible says that Ahab was worse than all of them. So as if the other guys weren't bad enough, Ahab takes the cake, if you will. He's married to a woman named Jezebel. Jezebel's a Phoenician. She's not a woman of God. She's a woman of a foreign culture, of foreign gods. And she's a woman that has an agenda. Okay? So she marries Ahab for political reasons, more than likely. And she really wants to instill power. And so she sets up a trilogy of gods. She sets up uh, Baal, she sets up Asherah, and she sets up Molech, which are the three gods of her people. And the chief god's name was Baal, and he was the god of the sky, he was the god of the climate, he was the god of the rainfall, he 
grass grow and all this other stuff. So that they worship that God. They would offer blood sacrifices to that God. They would do licentious, all kinds of crazy rituals as service unto that God that they would, they would slaughter innocents and blood rights to that God. All kinds of stuff. And the Lord had about had it. And so he's like, all right, I'm going to go and testify to these people. I'm going to go bear witness. I'm going to bring light into darkness and see if anybody wants light. That's essentially the theme of God. That's, that's the story of the gospel, and that's the story of what God would do there. People would be in darkness. He tells us when Jesus was born, those who dwell in darkness and what? See a great light. It's the same idea. Light comes into the darkness and says, does anybody want light? God doesn't beat people over the head. He doesn't give them their nonsense and say, you need to follow me. He simply showed up with mercy, with kindness, with light, with truth, with love, and understanding. That's his true nature. When he's shown that way, and he says, does anybody want, do you want something different than what you already have, always had? Do you want a different way, a different life, a different thing? I hope Jesus is the door of hope. That's how it works. And so he sends Elijah to this people in the darkness. And the thing that stands out to me very greatly, and this is always just amazing to me about the Lord, is you can see his nature. You will read between the lines. You can see the nature of the Lord. He sends Elijah to a people that are not asking for him. Nobody's asking for help. But the Lord, in his mercy, even if we're faithless, he's faithful. Even if we forget him, hello, God says, I will not forget you. I mean, so here's the people that are like rooted in darkness. So just think about that from a human level, right? You know, your friends are jacking you. They don't want anything to do with you. They've got all these sorts of bad things to say about you. And at the time, they were saying, God's dead. The God of our fathers is dead. He's not around. That's why Elijah showed up and said, you always God. And every time he opened his mouth, he says, as the Lord lives. In other words, y'all are thinking, God's dead. Wrong answer. Wrong answer. But imagine you, for a, a, on a human level, people who hate you, who reject you, who curse you. The last thing you want to do is do anything kind for them. The last thing you want to do is go and try to extend your hand to hope. You know, even if you're a merciful person, you got to be a little timid, thinking you're going to get it chewed off. You know what I mean? I mean, he does, yet the Lord does that. The Lord risks himself and his vulnerability to go and reach a people that he knows they're going to reject or for the most part, they're going to hate him. They're going to spit on him. They're going to defile him. Jesus risks himself even when he came to us and lowered himself. He risked the shame. He risked the rejection. He risked the abuse. He risked it all. So Jesus, God risks himself that way. God is willing to be vulnerable with you. Here's a lesson. Question is, are you willing to be vulnerable with him? That's the actual question. God is willing to be openly vulnerable with you. But are you willing to be openly vulnerable with him? He will risk himself. Are you willing to risk yourself? Are you willing to trust him? Are you? Yeah. Most people aren't, because they're being hurt so many times. They knew God as a man. It's not that way. Anyway, so God shuts, shuts down the gods of the age. Elijah shuts up the heavens because of the, the climate God. God shut up the heavens. And he says, you guys think this is where it's at? This earth is not subjected to man, it's subjected to me. It is not by man's word, it is not by the word of science, it is not by the word of technology, it is by the word of the Lord. And if science has discovered something, then that then their discovery merely points us to the fact that the nations have abandoned God. Because the Bible tells us that the land will throw us out when we don't love God. When, God, when we forget God, we'll take the land itself, just like he told Israel, the land itself will reject you. So if we discovered something about climate change, and whether you're pro-climate or whatever you are, that's the relevant point. The point is, 
is that the earth itself is not subjected to man. It is subjected to God. And that was his message here. This has nothing to do with what you think it is. If you think you found something, what you really found is that this points to me. This is telling you that you have forgotten me. This is telling you that if you would get ended, I don't want to get to it. I'm going down the road. Come back. Bring it back. Bring it back. I'm back. I'm back. Okay. So he sets down the gods of this age. He begins to shut them down. Elijah does that. And then Elijah has a confrontation with the false gods of the age. It's the God that answers by fire. We'll talk about that. And so the prophets of Baal made an altar. The prophets of Baal made a sacrifice. And Elijah said, just give him a throw down a thunderbolt. That's all we got to do. Your God is so supreme. They are the God of gods. All you guys are just, you know, you serve super God. So let super God shut down a thunderbolt. And when that thunderbolt connects the offering, we'll all say that he's God. And everybody said, that sounds good. Well, nothing happened. Elijah does it. The Lord, boom, lights it up. So they end up, the people end up killing the prophets of Baal and tearing down the altars of Baal. And Elijah runs to God tells him to go to Jezreel. So here again, if you're going to study prophets, you've got to realize that people, places, things, and names are prophetic. Everything has a meaning. Elijah's name has a meaning. Where he comes from has a meaning. The name Wherever God is sending you, everything is part of the story. Everything about a prophet is prophetic in nature. And so God sends him to Jezreel. Well, what does Jezreel mean? It means God so seed. So why is God sending him to Jezreel? What well, tells us what God was mandating? He won this victory. Now go sow seeds. Go sow seeds of the kingdom. Go sow seeds of my heart. Go sow seeds of my love. Go sow seeds into this culture. So he finishes. He has a victory. Now he's got a new mandate. And he freaks out. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Ever had some Lord tell you something? Have you never heard God tell you anything? But have you ever faced something or ever wanted to do something that was bigger than you? Or you didn't feel like you asked what it took to do it? So God says, go and sow seeds to Jezreel, and Elijah's like, oh my gosh. We're going to talk about what causes us to pull back, what causes us to stop. And in learning this, we're going to recognize things in your life. If you can recognize these things in your life, and you can realize that there are countermeasures to each one of these things, you can actually move forward. You don't have to be a prisoner. So Ahab goes and tells Jezebel, you know, God answered by fire, Elijah won, and all the people tore down the altars of Baal, and they killed all the prophets. And Jezebel goes, well, he goes to tell Elijah that if I don't kill him by tomorrow, then the gods kill me. Well, she didn't kill him by tomorrow, so, you know, that's obviously not her either. So Elijah was afraid, and here's the problem. He ran for his life, and when he came to the, the, the Sheba in Judah, he left his servant there. So we're going to see some things that happen with Elijah. We're going to realize what brings us into the pit, what brings us into ruts, and what causes us to fall back. Elijah just went to battle with hundreds of false prophets in front of a bunch of people, and he risked everything, and he won. Yet the words of one woman sent the guy running into a cave. There's a lesson here, ladies. Here's my lesson to you. Your words, if you recognize the power that your words have over men, you will use them more wisely. A woman in relationship to a man can cause the guy to build a bridge to go across the horizon, or she can send him into a cave for the rest of his life. And all the men said, Amen. That's right. Preach <laughs> it! The words of a woman like enable a man to become very powerful and encouraged, or they degrade him. They degrade him into 
redeem him to where like it takes a work for God to get him out of the cave. That's literally what it took for Elijah. Nobody can get him out of the cave. That he's running the cave in the back of the Come on now, it's okay. So, ladies, your words are very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we can go there. Why do you think you talk so much? Because it is a gift to your gender. And if it is a gift to your gender, your responsibility is to develop it and to make it into an art form. Women are the devil's worst nightmare. You are. Because women pray. When, that's where your communication is supposed to go, is in the prayer. And your communication is supposed to be developed to where when you speak, things are going to move, ladies. If you learn to use it the right way. And that's a whole spectrum. Now, there's a lot that goes into what I just said. That, learns, that means learning to recognize that your emotions are valid. That learns to realize, understand. A lot of women have been suppressed, and they don't they don't put their emotions at women. Just to the women today, and it doesn't feel that women don't feel that their emotions have any validity at all because they've been suppressed. All kinds of crazy stuff has happened to them, and then they themselves don't have the confidence in how they're feeling, and they don't do the hard work into discerning their own emotions. You, when you are intuitive, women, you are way more intuitive than, than men are, by far. But the downfall of that is when you feel something, you tend to just go crazy with it. And what God is expecting you to do is discern the emotion. What is it that I'm feeling and why? And then from that, this is where the art comes in, the communication, the prayer, the whatever. Particularly when it comes to marriage. You feel something in marriage, just blow the guy out the door. And he's like, where'd that come from? Discern what it is that you're feeling. And a lot of times women, when they act emotionally, they're acting out of fear. So they're responding emotionally out of a basis of fear. And it's insecurity. So they don't know that their feelings, the first thing they have to accept is whatever it is I'm feeling, my emotions are valid. For whatever reasons why I'm feeling them, the first step is to accept and know that your emotions are valid. I didn't say they were right, I said they were valid. They're there, they're true. Then it's to discern why am I feeling this way? Is it an issue of disrespect? Is it an issue of love? Is it, what, is it an issue of fear? Why am I feeling this way? And then to communicate from that point. That's how it works. That's how women can become incredibly powerful. Because that is the gift to your nature. When you recognize what you have been given, then you can work. This is the strength that the Father has given me. I'm intuitive. I'm a feeler by nature. I can discern things emotionally more so than any other any other any other any other part of mankind. Women speak thirty percent at least more words than men do in any given day. That's a fact. True. So if communication is a gift, and intuitiveness is a gift, then we need to harness that gift and develop that gift to what it is. And what the problem is is most is it's, is it's a lack of understanding or a lack of discipline or practice to develop what you have. And that's what leads you at the point that you are. That's the problem. That's what leads women there relationally. That's what leads women there spiritually. That's what leads women there emotionally. One of the gifts of the wife within the, within the relationship is when she discerns, she actually teaches her husband. Sure. Yeah, 
got one more, you've got two, you've got one more, you're going to down with me. I can say Jesus and Mo's going to give you a clap. Jesus! But the point is, is that the woman has to be man. Because the guy, if you think he isn't discerning, if you don't think, if you think, if you think he's, he's discerning, you're completely wrong. Guys have three feelings, mad, sad, or glad. You don't have a whole bunch of perspective beyond that until the woman tells us that. My wife, when she started doing this stuff, I started going, hey, you know what? I feel like that too. Wow, I think I actually have that emotion. Thank you for showing that to me. Wow. And I began to discern my own emotions, and I began to grow emotionally because she was maturing emotionally. Y'all got it in wholesale. So you got this big back or big warehouse with all this stuff stored in there. You don't know how to organize it. It's out of order. It's, you don't know what to do with it. That's the first discipline. And a lot of women, yeah, like, as I said, the validation is the word that I keep feeling. A lot of women don't believe that their emotions have validity at all. So they say nothing or they do nothing react yeah. negatively out of their emotions. Alright. So God tells Abraham to tell Abraham. God tells Elijah to do something, tells him to go some seeds. He freaks out, he runs. One over one sends him into the cave. Next slide. We're going to ask some questions. Let me ask this to you. Have you ever said, I can't do this anymore? Yeah. Have you ever felt like, I don't want to do this anymore? Yeah. Well, the Bible has a word for you. This is the beauty about the scripture, is Jesus tells it like it is. And you know Elijah didn't write this story. Because if Elijah was writing this story, he wouldn't have ran from the woman. You know, if you guys were writing that story, you'd be like, man, I faced out Jezebel, and I told that girl what time it is, and fire was flaming out of my fingertips, and I just you know, you know he didn't write it. So the Spirit of God writes it, and the Spirit of God shows human frailty. Because he wants us to understand that while these people walked with the Lord, communed with God, operated in power, anointing, whatever, whatever happened, they were still human and frail, just like you. And so Elijah calls fire down from heaven. Elijah uh, shuts up the heavens, calls rain to come in, and now he's running. Running. With great insecurity, he's running. Now he's just like, he takes off. So, what makes us run? The first thing that makes us run is fear. That's the number one thing. Fear makes you run. Say this with me. Fear is a distressing emotion of something that has not happened. Fear will never go away, Christian. Praise. You, we have a delusion that says fear will go. Fear is never going. Fear is the sentinel, the demonic guardian of the door to your destiny. 100% of the time, if you are going to go through a destiny door, you are going to have to face fear. 100% guaranteed. And if that's the case, you say, no, I will never face fear. Never face fear, you will always face fear. I am not afraid of the things that I have conquered because there's levels in my life, as I'm sure many of you can tell, that where you have gone through things and you're those things no longer cause fear to you because you overcome them. You slay that giant. But what you're fearful for is the next level, or that, or whatever, whatever it is, the unknown, the unexpected. Fear always guards the door of destiny. So we have to accept some things about fear if we're going to master it. Or, here it is, 
we can stay the same. <laughs> so you know, in the Bible, staying the same is not a good thing. Nowhere in the scripture does it, does it relate to us staying as if we always been, like traditions, and it's been this way for 100 years. God help us all if it's been this way for 100 years. Staying the same is not a good thing. God changes us from glory to glory, so there's a transfer, transitional thing. Fear is an insanely important thing. So we have to understand that I will always face fear. Whether you're going to get married, you're going to have a fear of commitment. You're going to have children, you're going to have a fear of raising your children. Uh, whatever, you're going to go into a new job, you're going to have fear of leaving the old job, going into a new job. Oh, there's two fears going to be there. So pick a level. Spiritually, emotionally, physically, financially, fear is there. 100%. The issue isn't whether fear is there, the issue is what are you going to do about it? That's the real question. God isn't going to make fear leave you. He's giving you what? Power. He's giving you love. He's giving you a sound mind. So he's giving you identity. He's giving you presence. And he's giving you his mind to deal with fear. Fear will always be there. Here's a distressing emotion of something that hasn't happened. Fear guards the door to your destiny. And here's the next thing you have to accept about fear. Say this with me. My fear of failure will always be greater in my desire for gain. Always. And if you can accept that and understand that, then you can do something about it. If you will not accept that, then you will never do anything about it. The fear of failure will always trump your ability for gain or your desire for gain. You want to do it, you've got this great vision. Oh, man, it's great. It's awesome. And as soon as you start moving into it, fear begins to overcome you. And the fear becomes surpassingly more great than the vision that you have. And it will happen to you 100% of the time. And so what you have to do is recognize that the fear of failure is a, is a native enemy. That is an enemy that is native to what it is that I'm trying to do. There's going to be a sentinel at the door, and the fear of failure is going to be there. So you have to accept that. That needs to be accepted. Then, you now you know what you need to do. I need to deal with the deal. I need to deal with the new before. I need to move past that. And I need to take my fear of failure, and I need to set it to the side, and I need to go towards that mark and say, even if I fail, I'm moving forward. This is where most people stop because they get into the fear of failure. Well, what if I fail? I might look that. Well, what if it doesn't work out? I might look like a dummy. I might look like this. I might look like that. I called out arthritis in the hands in the first service. I'm just sharing with you. Like, you try it. Come on up here. Go ahead. You know, fear of failure. Oh, pastor doesn't hear God. Oh, God forbid. Oh. I wanted to say that, but I didn't. I said it before the temple. We have this whole moment. Same thing. The church creates, and what we do is we create an anti-culture. We don't understand that the culture of the kingdom is a kingdom of risk. It's what it is. Your father is a is a risk taker. He's not a foolish risk taker, but he is a risk taker. You understand that? Jesus is a risk taker. I can give you an greatest example of Jesus being a risk taker. He takes three, he takes a group of guys that he's hung out with for three years and says, Here, go take the kingdom out into the world. That's a risk. Did you see the 12 apostles? Did you see the 12 disciples? Did you see who these guys were? They weren't the most successful looking people, they wouldn't be on your top 10. Go and find me 12 world changers. Search the nation high and low. If we were to send people out, those would not be those guys would not make the list. They wouldn't. A firefighter missing teeth named Peter. A doubter, I'm not sure. No. 
It'll give you the wisdom if you look to him for it. It'll give you the path forward if you look to him for it. Next slide. Jorts. He isolates himself, so he left his servant behind. People isolate themselves when things don't go right. That is the worst thing you can do. We isolate ourselves from God, we isolate ourselves from the church, we isolate ourselves from spouses, friends. The culture of the church is to be one of mutual encouragement. Typical American Christianity, which I'm a part of, is we either come to church when we're in right time, yeah, or we come to church when we're really low. And churches actually have one of those two cultures. They have a culture where everybody in the room is depressed at all times and struggling at all times. Or they have what we have in our modern terms, shiny happy people at all times. Everybody's shiny happy. And if not everybody in the room is shiny happy, then there's a problem. And so when you're a part of a shiny happy culture, if you're not feeling shiny happy, you don't go. If you're part of a depressed culture, and actually something good and glorious is going on in your life, well, you don't want to go either. So what's the idea? Neither one of those spectrums are true. We are a composite of all things. They are joy unspeakable and full of glory. And we are filled with people who need ministry and who need, here it is, encouragement. Yes. That is the, one of the New Testament markers of the church is encouragement. It's one of the threads that's filled throughout all the epistles and throughout all of the God of the, of the New Testament as it relates to the church. It's just to be a house of encouragement. That literally is mutual encouragement. Now, you know what I mean? You put courage in. If somebody's doing something, somebody did something awesome, like this big guy was just telling me something amazing, I was like, that's awesome. I'm going to put courage in her to go even further. If somebody isn't doing good and they're struggling with something and they're really in a not so good place, I'm going to put courage in them to lift them higher. That's what it means. And we should be able to do that. We should be able to celebrate. Oh, that's awesome. Let's go further. That's awesome. That's, we should celebrate with the celebrators. And we should help those that need help. And you should be okay with the fact that sometimes you're going to need help. You're not going to need it all the time, but sometimes you are. You understand? And so we're mutual encouragement. We're one to the other. We encourage each other. So you need to be an encourager, and you need to find an encourager. You need to be one. I tell people, you want to do something today, don't leave this place without encouraging somebody. I used to do two things. I used to carry pens. I'm serious. I used to give pens away because I wanted to give something away all the time. I wanted to live generously. So whatever, which is something God told me. I, mean, I still won't do it up to today, but I used to walk around with pens. Hey, Harris, when you do that pen, you have to do this. But I was trying to live a generous life. Then when I would come to church, I wouldn't leave until I found someone to encourage. And people would look at me like, oh, we're like, oh, thanks, Kevin. Thanks for that blessing. Just one thing. He said, man, I just want to bless you today, and I just want to encourage you. And you'll be amazed what starts happening. I mean, if you're prophetic, I mean, I just see a guy back there, I just want to encourage you. Yeah, I just want to encourage you. This is the only thing I'm going to the whole world opened up to me. Now, maybe that doesn't happen for you, because you can tell somebody, hey, man, I just want to encourage you. I think you're awesome. I'm so glad to see you. I just want to, you know, we put courage in someone. And if you need courage, go and find someone that can put courage into you. You have to have that. That's a necessity. So he was exhausted. This is the next thing he was. So he was isolated himself and he was tired. You might have been tired. Yeah, okay, we're exhausted. You're not a really cool person around when you're exhausted, right? Or hungry. That was the other thing he wanted to do. You ever go to the restaurant, like Sherry and I, we go to a restaurant and we're hungry? And there's a line and you gotta wait. And normally they bring bread if they hadn't brought bread. <laughs> anyway, 
not to spare at that moment. Or they bring your food, they bring your food first, and they don't bring hers. And she's hungry. So he was exhausted. So this is why he was hiding, this is where he was at. He was emotionally, because he led up to the, the confrontation, there was a lot of emotion that went into that. He was physically exalted, he was exhausted, he built altars, he butchered oxen, he was tired. The solution to being tired is, everybody say it with me, rest. Not, say with me, not just physical rest, emotional, intellectual rest. A lot of people lay on a bed, but they can't stop their mind from lying. Yeah. Or you lay on a bed and your emotions are just, you know, gymnastics all over the place. You have to find rest for your soul, rest for your heart, rest for your mind. What does that look like? Well, ask the Lord. He'll show you some ideas or give you some things that bring rest. And then they say with me, I need to give myself permission to rest. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, returning to rest to be saved, saved to deliver. So returning to me and resting in me, the way upon the Lord will be your strength. He says, in quietness and confidence will be your strength. And when you're resting, just be quiet and still, God's going to move your strength. Next slide. Elijah was exhausted. Just jump down here. You guys can read it later. It's in 1 Kings 19. I'm basically breaking down the whole chapter for you. But um, So in 1 Kings 19, what another thing Elijah did is he forgot the Lord. In the whole story of Elijah, in this part, he doesn't mention the Lord. He doesn't communicate with the Lord. He doesn't pray. There's no worship at all. He forgot the Lord. And the Lord sends an angel to him to minister to Elijah. So again, even when we forget Jesus, he doesn't forget us. And the Lord begins to meet Elijah's need. He gives him food, he gives him water, and he tells him to rest. Here's some food, here's some water, rest. So God ministers. And then he gets up and he moves forward. But Elijah's next problem is that he focused on the negative. So he forgot the Lord and he's focusing on the negative. Wrong answer. Okay? So we count, we count our blessings on our fingers and our miseries on our calculators. That's what we do. Okay? We have to flip that. We have to, whatever things are good, whatever things are pure, if anything's a good report, what does it tell us to do? Help me. Okay? Whatever things are pure, whatever things are good, whatever things are lovely. Anything is a good report. Is there any good news in your life at all? Anything at all? Yeah. Well, I'm breathing. Great. We're going for that one. We're in on your breathing. Let's get a mirror. Let's just let's just partner with your breathing. And look at that. You are breathing. Come on, you're breathing. Focus on the positive. You are wired to respond to faith. That's how God has wired you. That's why that takes you down an entirely different road. So Elijah's like, it's all over. It's all over. I'm the last one. Kill me now. Kill me now. He's still where you're going. Okay? And he runs to this place called Horeb, which is called the Mount of God. What is this place? It's the place where Moses got the Ten Commandments. So he runs all the way over here. He's supposed to go to Jezreel. Go so sees Elijah. But he decides that's not what he's going to do. So he runs over here, and the Lord strengthens him, and he goes even further. Next slide. This is just the this, this next slide is just an image. They found the actual mountain of God. I don't know if you're aware of that. I mean, we, for centuries they've said it's in the Sinai Peninsula. Only problem with that, the Bible doesn't say that the Mount of Moses is in the Sinai. The Bible tells us in Galatians, the Mount of Moses is in Arabia. 
And there's a video that's worth at least an hour of your time. It's called Mountain of Fire. It's by a guy named Robert Cornyn. And literally, the they have found the entire place where the, where the, where the, uh, the exodus took place. Everything is there. And it will blow your mind. The top of this, this, this mountain was made out of granite, and the entire top of the mountain was charred black. And they split the rocks open, and they showed the granite inside, and the butter is just burnt on the outside. They find the, they find the stone, the, the rock that was split, it wasn't some little stone, it was a big megalith that stood up like that, and it looks like a laser that split the stone. And there's all of this massive water erosion that took place, and they can be giving water to three million people. So it wasn't like this little tiny rock with a little river coming out of it. That isn't going to help anybody. It was a torrential flood of water that created this massive reservoir. And they show flaking, water flaking, in the, in the soil, in the, in the earth. It's an amazing, amazing thing. Well worth the time. Mount of fire is probably Reality is, this is no fable. We are not talking about fables here. This isn't, well, you know, God came down and plowed the fire on the mountains. You know, it's like, like you talk about like this mystery. This happened. Okay? So the same now say that happened. That happened. The Lord came down and fire people. They actually showed the boundary stones and everything. This site has been untouched by the Arabians. They have fenced it in. Tom was just telling me, Tom uh, Paraiso was telling me he worked, he was an, uh, an engineer. Uh, he was an industrial engineer. He worked at Arabia. And he said, yeah, that mountain's well known. Well known. They, they fenced it off. Mount Moses, the whole area is messed up. It's crazy, it's been crazy, crazy, crazy. Undeniable. What the rest of Undeniable. Here we go. And if you get down the mountain fire, just like you said, how much more yeah. is all yeah. yeah. trouble? Yeah. 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 So here's one of God's solutions. Moses, he comes to Moses, he runs down to the mountain of God, he's there. The Lord comes to Elijah. So Elijah's run, 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 run. He's finally at the end of himself, and the Lord goes, Elijah, why are you here? Why are you here? He didn't lecture him, he didn't give him a speech, didn't give him a sermon, didn't correct him. None of them. Didn't do any of that. He said, Elijah, you know, you're my prophet, man. You know, you're costing me time, you're costing me input, is your problem, deal with yourself. No, no, no. So Elijah, why are you here? Elijah, if you read what he said, Elijah, Elijah was basically clueless as to why he's here. He didn't really even understand. Oh, I've been doing this, I've been doing that. You know, everybody's dead, and I think I'm like the last guy. Well, so, you know, I figured, you know. He's clueless. The Lord tells him to go out on the mountain. I'm going to show you something. Elijah was there because he had forgotten the presence of God. That's why he's there. So he's there, and he says, you're seeing yourself in the absence of me, in the absence of my presence. How do we know? Because that's the very thing the Lord showed him. He showed him his presence. There was a fire, there was an earthquake, there was a wind. God wasn't in any of it. He was in the gentle voice. So the Lord says to him, go back the way that you came. He says, you're getting off track, Elijah, because you're listening to the noise. You're listening to the fire, and the wind, and the earthquake, and the new, and the that, and this. You're off track, because you're listening to the noise. So get back on track. Stop listening to the demands and the expectations of life. Ooh! Ouch! Ouch! 
happens on Earth. Does that get you off track or what? Demands, the right now things, the right now, the demands and the expectations take you off track immediately. And you just want to just want to give up on the whole thing. And he tells Elijah, go back to where you came, get on track, stop following the noise, follow my word. But it's just a small voice. Follow my word, my spirit, my voice. So there you go. Go back to where you came, get back on track, start doing what I already did, you already know to do, start doing what I already told you to do. You're off track, you're in the wrong place, you're in the wrong thing. Get back on track and do it this way. Then he tells him to operate in the anointing. It's crazy. He tells him to go and anoint three people. Go anoint Haziel, go anoint Jehu, and go anoint Elisha. In other words, start ministering to other people. Isn't that a fact? Get in the spirit and start. What anointing is is release. That's what it is. Impartation, release, blessing, encouragement. So you stop, stop thinking about you, Elijah, and go and minister to some other people. As he gives him an assignment, tells him to get back on track, start listening to his voice, and now go minister to these people that I've set out for you. Stop thinking about you. Go and anoint these guys. Hello. Right? And then he says, go and find Elisha. And who's Elisha? Well, Elisha in the story is a person that believes in Elijah. He believes Elijah, who he says, who God says he is. He has, he has more confidence in Elijah than Elijah does in himself. And Elisha is a person that Elijah can have confidence in, too. They're called big arrows. Guys, so I told this story for a service, I'll tell it now. The guy mentored me for just this very, very short window of my life. What he gave to me in that time has affected me for decades. And I'll tell you that next week. His name is Chip Anderson. So Chip Anderson... I had two PhDs. He was a, a professor at UCLA. I met him with somebody else. We had a chance to spend some time with him. Long story. But what he told me was that he was an alcoholic and he was depressed. All right. He got two PhDs. You're a professor of philosophy, or whatever it was that he was a professor at, at UCLA, Syracuse University. And he said what changed and transformed his life. And he said two things. Number one, he said he drained the swamp. This is long before President Trump or whatever said, drain the swamp. This is not a political term. This is 20 years ago. We said, drain the swamp. He said, I got rid of all of the negative influences in my life. All of them. My environments, the people, the places, and the things. I got rid of all of the negative. And he said, I got rid of my own negativity. My own perceptions, my own belief systems, everything that I perceived understood as being negative, that was in fact a swamp to me. It was causing me to constantly bog down and stuff and stinking and mire all the time. He said, I eliminated that. And then he said the second thing he did was he got big arrow people into his life. A big arrow person is someone that mutually exchanges with you. That doesn't just receive from you. Some of y'all are out there, you know what I'm talking about. The vacuum cleaner, the person that just comes up and puts up the hose. Sucks everything you got out of you and then leaves you. That's not a big arrow person. Okay? So the big arrow person is somebody that can impact you and somebody that you can be impact that you can get you can impact, but also somebody that can impact you and cause you to go higher. And this is what probably subconsciously why I call this church elevated, is what he told me. But he told me that. So I've done my best to eliminate as many negative influences as I've ever had in my life. It's been my discipline try to do that. It's also been my discipline to try to, to try to be influenced by big arrow people. 
You can be influenced by bigger old people without sitting down and having coffee with them. You can listen to them on audio, you can read their books, you can watch their videos. You don't have to get to know that person individually in order to be influenced by them and in order to allow that person to impact you. You understand what I'm talking about? Yes. Okay? And so a big arrow person is a person that impacts you in such a way that points you or pushes you higher. So that's the goal, is to find those big arrow people. If you want to be somewhere that you're not in five years, you need to change your friends. You need to change your associations and you need to change what you're being influenced by. You understand? You're, yes. Your five closest friends, two things, well, there's several, but two of the main things that determine your future in five years is what you're taking in and who you're associating with. So what are you taking in? Well, I watch news 24-7. Well, you're going to be an angry person. <laughs> Depressed and discouraged at all times. It's true. What you take in and who you associate with. Your economic level is actually associated by your five closest friends. That's a fact. That is an absolute fact. And it's because you're going to be influenced by the way they think, by the way they live, by the decisions that they make. So you have to get associated, you have to associate with people at a different level. You have to become influenced by people at a different level. And when that happens, you're going to be amazed, your mindset's going to change. I mean, Jesus in the gospel is one of them. The, the gospel is probably one of the most, it is the most empowering word on the planet. The Holy Spirit is the most empowering spirit on the planet. There's no one more empowering than him. No one tries to take you higher than him. No one has a greater vision for your life than he does. And so that's a key relationship right there. The other things is find out those what you want. It's a whole other teaching, but be involved with the Come on, Kevin. Just go. Come on. You have to find people that influence you to take a different question. The first question I would tell you all that is what do you want? What do you want? Why? Well, then I forget. You're never going to get what you want if you don't know what you want. What do you want? Well, I want a successful marriage. Great. Study marriage. Study marriage. Find people that are successful at it, find messages that are successful towards it, find coaching, find whatever. I want to raise my kids well. Okay, great, same idea. Find people who raise parents' kids well, find people who understand this, find people. All these things become influenced by that. That's where you draw your influences from. You understand that? I want to be successful in business. Okay, I want to know that. What kind of business? Well, business is a broad concept. Okay, we can study business, but what about, well, I want to have a Car wash, well, then study people who've been successful in car washes. That's, that's the idea. Whatever it is, you have to be impacted by that. If you think your friends are going to do this, you're not. You're just not. Yeah. So that's, that's how we get what we're going to get. That's how we move forward. I think the greatest tragedy is lives that are spent with dreams still in them, or lives that are spent. With, with almost all of the potential of that person remaining, that they've never stepped out to exercise even an iota of the potential. They've not even tried anything. And that is the greatest, that's the saddest reality of it all. And that's not God's heart for you, that's not His will for you, it's will that what you want. What do you want? I want to have great dynamic friendships. Well, study books on friendship. That's what you need. 
Bible has a verse for you, my friends. The Bible says, those who desire Christ, nothing show themselves friendly. What does that mean? If you want a friend, be a friend. Nobody else can have a coffee. Ask somebody out for coffee. Nobody else can go over for dinner. Ask somebody out for dinner. You want friends to show yourself friendly. Okay? Yes, so the seed. I mean, there's an old book. I mean, how when friends and influence people, right? The number one thing is, if you want to you know what that means? Very simple. You don't even need to read the book. I'm going to give you the clip notes right now. Right now. It's a very simple premise. If you want people to like you, like them. If you want people to like you, like them. You ever done that? Somebody comes up and you're like, oh, wow, that's so great. I just really like that about you. You're wonderful. You may have never met that person, and you'd be wondering, I really like that guy. <laughs> I don't know what it is about that guy, but I really like him. Well, he didn't do anything except like you. You understand? So if you want people to like you, like them. That's actually the, the essence of the gospel. And somebody told me, I don't know who told me, so I'm going to tell you a story. So they went to a hall, it was big beats, and he went to this church, it was unmentionable, he went there, and they asked him what church he came from, it wasn't this one, it was a church that he sat before. And he said, he told them, he said, oh, we're, we're all from this church. And they go, well, we all want to walk around here, you know, I'm from church. Spirit coin and Nita right there, man. Brotherly love, you congregation. <laughs> we like people, we like people, like people. People will like you if you like them. That's the clearest approaching session. I love you guys. I'm like you. Hopefully, you still like me. Let me bless you. Let me pray for you. Father, we sing so much. Say this with me. Say, Lord, show me the areas of my life. When I'm in prison, or my life is soft because of fear. Give me the courage to accept the reality of what I have, is. and I just was going with the prayer. Courage, the determination to move through fear. That I might go and be for the one who is. And that I might go through your destiny. In the areas of my life, Lord, I said, hold me back. If I'm tired, teach me to rest. If I'm, if I'm weary, teach me to be strong. Help me to identify any and all the negative influences in my life. Lord, I give you permission to make these negative influences intolerable. Even if those things come from within me, I don't want to tolerate it. Show minutes. Equip me. Empower you gotta switch that sound. Oh, yeah. You gotta look for something that's more. Which one? I don't know. You gotta scroll down. Hillsong. Yeah, it's good, but it's not gonna be long. It's only five minutes. It's okay. Uh, I see what you mean. It's okay. We'll just play for one. We'll fix it in five minutes. May the Lord be